0: Just kiss your babies gently, have a night, and do the best you can, yeah, and do the best you can. Welcome to Unto Others, where we interview the coolest people you've never heard of. I'm Stephen Woodfin, your host. We hope if you enjoy these interviews that you'll stop by UntoOthers.org and drop us a line. Good morning, everybody. This is Steve Woodfin. We want to thank you for joining us on Unto Others. And I'm so delighted today to have Steve Howell with us as our guest. And uh, before I bring Steve on, uh, I want to mention a couple of things where you can... uh, uh, research some of the things he has available online. First, Steve Howell. w-s S-T-E-V-E-H-O-W-E-L-L.ws, Steve's webpage that has uh, a lot of his music listed, ways to buy his music, ways to listen to different songs uh, that he's got recorded, and also a, a way to subscribe to his YouTube channel. And I highly recommend that you go there and and uh, check Steve's stuff out. So, with as Jimmy Durante would say, with further ado, let me bring Steve Howell on board. Good morning, Steve. Good
1: morning, Steve.
0: Great to have you with us today. Nice I'm to wa- be
1: here. Thanks.
0: I'm going to talk about a couple of things that I've got on my list here. First, uh, finger-picking early jazz standards by the Howell Leonard Corporation. And I know that that's a book that you developed, so tell me, how the, tell me what that book is about and how the process worked.
1: Okay, well, uh, it is a music book. Uh, Hal Leonard is the largest publisher of sheet music in the world. Uh, the way it came about was through my love of applying finger guitar playing to the great jazz standards. Uh, the, the songs in the book are from the time period of 1910 to 1933. Uh, it's uh, Blue Skies, Bye Bye Blackbird, uh, all different songs from that period, St. Louis Blues. And uh, I'm a fingerstyle guitarist, and what I did was, over time, I had worked out arrangements of all these great standards and, uh, that, I, that could be played solo for finger style guitar, which would encompass playing a bass line and the chord changes and the melody simultaneously without a pick. And uh, so I started trying to figure out how to put together a book of these tunes. Uh, my friend Dan Sumner, my friend and uh, uh, musical partner, is a jazz guitarist, very highly educated, went to the New England Conservatory of Jazz, Capital University, Indiana University, Uh, played in New Orleans for 15 years, Uh, who is very well versed in musical calligraphy, took videos of me playing these songs, playing my arrangements, that is, and uh, he wrote them all out in musical notation and in tablature, which is another method of, of... playing written music off the page. I started trying to figure out how to publish a book of these, and I found out that uh, under the copyright laws, there is no provision for mechanical licensing of copyrighted music for print purposes. You can mechanically license a song under the copyright laws, uh, Uh, You pay a little bit of money to record the song and put it out on a record, and uh, that money is distributed through different entities to the publishers. But for print, you can't do that. And I couldn't get people like the George Gershwin estate to return my phone calls. (laughs) Imagine that. Uh, Yeah, right. Uh, So they, uh, uh, I went through a couple of services. To try to get this done and still couldn't get it done. So I uh, threw a friend of mine, uh, Dave Rubin in New York City, who's a famous music book writer and music critic, uh, writer about music as well, uh, introduced me to a guy at Hal Leonard, one of the editors, and I sent him what Dan and I had put together, and they agreed to put it in a series of finger-picking books that they have in their catalog, and so finger-picking early jazz standards. Fifteen of my arrangements. Uh, run out and get a copy.
0: Now also, um, maybe you mentioned to me at one point, not lo- too long ago, that you might be working on another of those uh, similar type books. Is that, is that true? Uh,
1: yes. Uh, a friend of mine, an ex-musical partner... Uh, a girl singer named Catherine Hobgood Ray, Katie Hobgood Ray, she often goes by, is the great great niece of the mythological jazz finger pl- style player from the late 20s and early 30s, Snoozer Quinn from Bogaloosa, Louisiana, who went to New York City as a guitar player, played in the Paul Whiteman Orchestra in the 20s, most popular band in the country. Uh, and we're transcribing some of Snoozer's stuff and going to put it in a book. And with Katie's collaboration with me and Dan, uh, we're going to try to put out a, a book about Snoozer Quinn by Dan Sumner. And Katie will probably write some of the background, forward, uh, and biographical sections of the book as well. She's already got a bunch of that stuff already written. So that's in the works.
0: And that's... Uh We've jumped into the the finger-picking book and all of that information early on, uh, but I probably need to tell our audience that uh, Steve Howell is an accomplished person on a number of levels, but uh, uh, of course he is a blues guitarist, he is a vocalist, uh, and he is, as you can already tell, uh, a historian of the blues So, what a cool deal. And uh, now I want to talk about the latest release that you have, which I understand is uh, History Rhymes, which is, uh, once again, a collection of blues classics. But you tell me about it. What is History Rhymes? First of all, what does that title mean?
1: It's from a purported Mark Twain quote. History doesn't rhyme. History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. Uh, and so the History Rhymes idea uh, has something to do with my take on the, the world in which we live, uh, but also points toward what my primary musical bag is, which is, uh, which is music from the first half of the 20th century. Uh, I, I like it all. <laughs> Uh, But some parts of it, particularly rural country blues, Appalachian music, and Great American Standards uh, are the Great American Songbook-type tunes, uh, are what my
0: main thrust is. I actually took off of your webpage the following quote. I mean, you may have written this. Quote, The heart of Steve's playing and singing is in the, rooted in the rural acoustic blues and traditional jazz genres, born in the American South.
1: Yeah, I didn't write that. I, I think a a reviewer in uh, in the United Kingdom wrote that.
0: Well, cool. Uh, but uh, you focus on uh, music in the first half of the 20th century. Now, what led you? What is there about that music that grabs you to such an extent that you would focus on it?
1: I just thought it was a particularly productive period. Uh, it was The world was much different than it is now, and it's not just a nostalgic thing for me at all. I, I love the music itself, but uh, I just think there was a particular explosion in that time period right there that, uh, that created some of the greatest music that anybody's ever heard. Uh, all the way from George Gershwin to Robert Johnson and Blind Lemon Jefferson and and pretty much everything in between. Uh, A.P. Carter and the Carter family, uh, Jimmy Rogers, all of those people. You know, Jimmy Rogers was as big as Michael Jackson. (laughs) You know, he was huge nationwide. Uh, Singers like Bessie Smith were as well, just enormous. And you can draw lines from now back to them and see the influence that those people had on, on all the musical forms that we, that we listen to now pretty much.
0: Is there somebody you'd pick out, I mean, out of that group of names you have already mentioned or other names as being kind of the, uh, the king of that time period? For me, it's Blind Lemon Jefferson uh, from Couchman,
1: Texas. He was a blind man who was an itinerant player. uh, As they did with some other artists, the Paramount record label in the 20s would bring him up to Wisconsin, to their studios in the Wisconsin Chair Factory. This was back when they were making uh, uh, console phonograph players, and they wanted to sell in the furniture stores when someone bought a record player, they wanted to sell them some records as well. So uh, these were race records, uh, primarily directed toward an African-American market. But if you go back to Blind Lemon and listen to all of the cuts that he did for the Paramount label, you can hear almost every single hook in a blues song that we're listening to now. Blind Lemon pretty much
0: said it first. And what years was he active, or what was the peak of his career?
1: 27 through maybe 32. I may be a little loose on that exact span, but... 29 30 31 were big years for him uh lead belly from from this part of the world was uh was his lead boy for a while traveled around with him uh learning from him at the master's knee
0: and since some of the people listening to this will have no idea where we are uh let's talk about the part of the country first of all i didn't get you to uh orient yourselves toward time and place but Uh, where do you live now and where do you do most of your daily work in marshall
1: texas which is uh uh, extreme northeast texas Uh, i actually live in the county where Leadbelly was raised harrison county texas he jumped across the line and went to shreveport and made a name for himself but but he was from harrison county
0: well (laughs) always when i'm talking to people that are uh what is the term that's uh used now creatives uh that people that create stuff whether you write whether you sing whether you do art or sculpture or woodwork or all sorts of things uh always like to know what their regimen is Uh, and i know i think i've heard you say before that there's a ray charles quote that says if he doesn't play or doesn't practice today. He he knows that if he doesn't practice two days, everybody else knows it. So I'm always curious, uh, What do you have, a, I, I don't know, not necessarily a daily, but a, a regimen of some sort as far as your rehearsing is concerned? Uh, I do take
1: specific per- rehearsal time, but I also... Uh, I also try to just have a guitar in my hands as often as possible and listening to music as much as possible. Uh, I'm kind of at the denouement, should I say, of of my work career and business career in my life. And uh, I'm trying to make sure that I've got a guitar in my hands four or five hours a day now.
0: Well, while we're talking about that denouement, um, uh you've one of the things i've always admired about you is that you've you've worked at your craft of the guitar and singing and uh studying the blues ever since i've known you which by the way for our audience's sake is about you know a hundred years approximately a hundred years we've known each other since childhood uh, but you've played guitar since uh what you were about 12 13 years old or something like that
1: i was actually 11 when i took my first lesson and I'd been messing around on one for three four years before that.
0: Well, so that's, just so you know, folks, that's about 50. Uh, uh,
1: 56 years. Uh,
0: yeah, that's about, that's a long time. But almost 100. <laughs> but throughout that time, uh, you've stayed with it. And you've, uh, you've honed your craft and you've developed new techniques and you've studied techniques. Uh, But all throughout that time, you also worked a day job, right? Right. And give the audience some idea of uh, the sort of things you've done. Let's say uh, when you finished the Navy, you did a four-year stretch in the Navy. Right. And you got out of the Navy in? 77. And then from that, just give us a thumbnail sketch of the sort of day jobs you've held since then.
1: Uh, Well, I went to college, finished college after that, and then I went into oil and gas and worked as a field landman for about two years and then I took an in-house position as, as in-house landman uh, with a company uh, an independent oil and gas operator after about two years of the field work and then I did that for about eight or ten years and then went out on my own in a family venture with my dad where we uh just sort of did our own oil and gas deals and at that time i guess i became an independent oil and gas producer and i've done that uh as well as some other business stuff i've been involved in real estate and title industries uh distribution of of gasoline i've owned some convenience stores and and distributed gasoline products uh and oil and stuff uh for all these years you know since then uh
0: but despite uh, that extremely time-consuming and uh, complicated business adventures that you've had down through the years, you've still kept up the guitar and kept your music going, right?
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's just always been my... It's always driven me. I've always been fascinated by it. There's always been more to learn and real-life journey... Uh, one long tune
0: <laughs> well and you this know? makes me uh i have to use this word i just i just have been looking forward to using this word as i've been thinking about uh interviewing you and that is that you are a classic auto diktat right uh that you've taught yourself all about the blues and i mean that doesn't mean you haven't learned from other people but
1: uh, it doesn't mean there's not a lot left to learn too
0: well sure uh, but that's what makes you want to. Well, the thing you just described as your curiosity about it, it's yeah. inexhaustible, is one of the things that's just kept you going.
1: Yeah, I guess. I just, the hook got set early. Uh, I, I do have memories of sitting in my diaper in front of my mother's console record player, just wondering where all that was coming from. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I've, and it, the hook got set early, and, you know, you and I have spent a lot of time on music together over the years. Uh, we both have a, a love of music. Uh, but, yeah, I just always wanted to know more and more and more and more. Uh, it's just such an attraction to me. I always wanted to, to really be as good of an instrumentalist as I could. That always mattered to me. I had a way I knew I wanted to do that. I didn't want to be Eric Clapton, you know, uh, as much as I admire what he, what all he's done in his life. But I had a way I knew I wanted to do it, and, uh, and hopefully that's what's been manifested in these records that I've made.
0: Let's talk about technique for just a second, because I remember a time way back uh, where— uh, where you were you became interested in uh, merle travis yeah sort of picking which is uh i guess thumb and one finger thumb and index finger sort of picking right
1: he picked thumb and index finger for sure uh i'm i'm more of a thumb and first two fingers sometimes the ring finger as well
0: well and that's where not a
1: classical approach per se but but I use more fingers than Merle Travis did. Yeah.
0: Well, that's where I wanted to go. Uh, even though you've explored different techniques of different players, uh, you have developed your own technique uh, down through the years. And, and what would you call it? Where does Where does it stand in the in the great genre of things?
1: <laughs> well, but fairly close to the bottom. Uh, no, I mean uh, 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 there is a a way that. Uh, I mean, I'm not as good as the great jazz finger stylist, or not as complete. Let me say, you know, where these guys are really, really, really doing some incredible stuff. Uh, but I always had a way. I knew I wanted to do it. Uh, the finger stylists I ran across when I lived overseas, when I lived in Great Britain, there was a whole subculture of guys over there, and I was so taken with that, uh, with what they could do, what what. Uh, what Andres Segovia called the orchestra through the wrong end of the telescope, and try to keep all of those to, to have as complete of a sound, you know, to be able to carry the melody with a bass line and the chordal movements, the harmony moving through songs. Uh, I've always been shooting for that, and 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 that's what I try to do.
0: Well, while we're talking about the instrumental side of it, I know that you, right now, in your present situation, you play with several different people. And uh, give, t- tell everybody who you're playing with now. And, uh, you know, uh, I know you do solo gigs, you do duets, you do uh, uh, combo sort of things. Just give yeah. us an idea of who you're playing with. Uh, well,
1: I play and have played for... Over 30 years with three guys in Little Rock, Arkansas, uh, Dave Hoffpower, Chris Michaels, and Jason Weinheimer, and we go out as Steve Howell and the Mighty Men, and uh, we play all we can, anytime we can, you know, and have made three records together. Uh, Jason and I have made two together. That's uh, one of my main one of my main thrusts. I play a duet with Dan Sumner, the fellow I referred to earlier, who is, a, who is an incredibly accomplished jazz guitarist and uh, really enjoying what we're doing and uh, hopefully got a record coming out in maybe January. And then I've played a little bit on uh, some stuff for some other people, uh, not a whole lot of that. Um, primarily the duet with Dan and... Uh, the Mighty Men, and then those two records I made with Jason. One of them was just me and Jason, but the second one, this History Rhymes, I've included. Uh, I was able to 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 get these guys to play with me, uh, David Dodson and and Dan as well, playing along with me and Jason. David's an old high school friend of mine. We've been friends for years and years, and he adds mandolin and banjo to the record. Really did a fantastic job, I thought.
0: And the lady you mentioned earlier, Katie. Yes. Uh, now, she's not an instrumentalist, but but a vocalist, right? She plays some guitar,
1: but primarily a vocalist. Uh-huh.
0: And you've you've played in bands with her for a long time as That's well. That's right. Uh-huh. All right. I want us to uh, bridge into something now. Uh, we're Now we're down to talking the blues. Uh, and... I know you've thought about this for many, many years, but what is it about a song that makes it the blues? Well,
1: I mean, that's, that's a tough one to, to just come up with a little <laughs> answer about. Uh, people who write about music could probably do it better than me. But uh, blues is a really broad category to me, and it's not as much of a genre to me as it is a color in the music that that points up the essential aspects of the human condition love gained love lost love regained happiness sadness loss of all kinds uh just the kind of internal feelings that all of us people have our insecurities and our uh, failures and our successes and uh to me, there's a realness to it that that I don't hear in a, in a lot of other musical genres. But, uh,
0: well, I hear you saying basically that the blues always deals with universal human themes. That uh, uh, maybe the the way I like to think of it is everybody's always dealing with something. Yeah. And uh, a blues song is about dealing with something. True. Uh, but it, if and I I want to bridge now into this let's take a couple of examples because uh, on History Rhymes uh, your latest release you have you do a cover of uh, you don't know me mm-hmm. which was written by Cindy Walker and based on a an idea that Eddie Arnold gave her and I think that song was written in 1955 there which which places it at about the midpoint of the century uh, uh But tell me about that song to start with. Why is that song in a blues, uh, on a blues record?
1: To me, it's a quintessential blues song. Uh, You know, it's the story of this guy meeting this woman that he's loved deeply uh, all his life, and she's been unattainable for him. And he meets her with another guy, and he's just so so horribly shy that he's never been able to tell her that he's never been able to act on his feelings at all and uh, uh you know that song's not about me but but just the feelings that that character has uh it points up things we've all felt at one time or another and uh that whole deal about love lost and gained and never gained in the first place and I mean, to me, that's just uh, broadly says a lot about a human being,
0: well, and that's a good example of a song where it's the it's it's the subject matter, of course, that song is just i mean how are you gonna find a a greater song than that I, I mean, don't know it's just one of the fantastic standard songs of all time, but I think uh, I think of Elvis's version first when it first comes to mind. I think of Elvis's version, but even when Elvis is doing it, you still have that uh, that sense. I mean, he does a good job. It's, it's not an Elvis sort of song, you wouldn't think necessarily, but uh, he he portrays that loss and that uh, I don't know what the right word is I'm searching for, uh, but just what might have been. But never was sure. sort of thing.
1: Well, one of the things that drew me to that song in the first place was that my mother loved it so much. Well, there you go. I mean, I, she she loved Eddie Arnold, and and uh, and I I loved his version. I used to hear it all the time when I was a little kid. So, uh, and then it's it's just lived on. and These songs that I'm talking about just continue to live on and on and on and on.
0: And they've been covered. Oh, an endless yeah. number of times, but it doesn't matter how many times they're covered. There, there's something new about each. each no, that's version. true.
1: And and to me, that but really points up the greatness of that music in an age when when the only people pretty much that get radio airplay or any attention at all uh, all write their own songs. And there are some fantastic, incredible songwriters out there. And then there's a lot that aren't. And and to me. Uh, these songs never grow old. They never go out of date or get irrelevant because they're always centered on these, you know, it's not about, you know, getting drunk at the lake in the back of a pickup truck. They're all about these things we're talking about, the the commonality between us all, the feelings that humans have, the... Uh, that you and I have talked about a million times—the golden braid, the the true vine—you know the
0: well um, essential things. And while we're talking about that, I'm I'm going to come back to one other song here in a second. Before, uh, before I do, when you're making your selection of songs for an album, uh, how do you go about doing that? I mean, is it beca- are these these songs that have stuck in your head for years and years and years? Is that the ones you you tend to gravitate towards?
1: Yes, I, mean, I, I don't I don't write. Uh, I mean, I just don't. It's it's not what my journey is about, uh, but a song that speaks to me, or to which I have a a deep personal connection, uh, is always important to me. The early blues songs, I just love the the syntax and the way those people express themselves. Uh, to me, it's just fantastic. Once again, in in our part of the country. Uh, that's not just an, an African American thing, you know. Uh, this is the way we talk down here, <laughs> mm-hmm. and 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 I love the way that they turned words and phrases around in those in those early tunes.
0: Well, going back to history rhymes, one of the songs on there is uh, "If I Had My Way." Right, and um, uh, I was actually listening to that this morning in anticipation of uh, interviewing you, and I was thinking, man, that song is a uh, It's really a revolutionary song in some ways. I mean, Mm -hmm. you're dealing with very powerful uh, Mm -hmm. issues uh, that had to be couched in the way that it was couched. Uh, And so people can hear it one way when they, if they're in a certain mood, they can hear it another way if they're in another moment in their lives. Okay, so I want to go back now to uh, song number two, which is uh, Me and Bobby McGee. Because mm-hmm. that's one of those songs that's always, every time I hear it, it just does something. Uh, I mean, it's, it just really moves me. But I got to hear, uh, in Ken Burns' uh, uh, series on country music that's just come out here recently on uh, public TV, he does an interview with Chris Christopherson, uh, who wrote the song. And uh, and in that, he he also does a... A segment with the producer uh, who uh, told Chris uh, after the song had come out he he told Chris well I just got to listen to Janis Joplin's version of that song which was released after her death and he said to uh, Chris don't listen to it when you're alone but what? So let's let's talk about that song for a minute. It it can be done a, a a whole bunch of different ways, and he was saying don't listen to it when when you're alone because it was so powerful that you would want somebody you know to be there to share it with. I guess when you heard it, but uh, when you take country sort of approach to that song, and then you take Janis Joplin's uh, version of it, they're both the, they're both the blues, I guess, right? Yeah, I, I think for sure. C-
1: certainly that song, I'd have to say, is. I mean, I always related that song to the two of them knowing that they had been an item for a long time. Well, I say a long time. I think Janice was an item with a lot of people for a little short periods of time. But, but to me, that always added a little more to that song. And, and that may have been what had something that prompted the listen to it when you're don't listen to it alone comment. I don't know, considering it was after her death. but But it's because both of the people are blue. <laughs> it's because the character in the song is blue. and it's because obviously Chris and Janice both picked up on that and whether it meant something to them in the light of their a relationship they might have had, they both just pinged on that and recognized that right away. Of course, Chris is the writer. I mean, you know, that just came from inside. But as blue as she was and as steeped in the early blues as she was, I figure she picked that up right away about that song.
0: Yeah, and I think, I don't know about the history either, other than you mean the down and dirty history part of it, of what, how she got a hold of the song or anything yeah, like either. that. But uh, the, song, the song is the song, right? I right. mean, and the song finds an artist, and then the artist and the song somehow meld into one thing. No doubt. Uh, which is, to me, just a, a beautiful thing about music in general, but certainly about the blues. Big time. All right. Now, this is the perfect opportunity for us to uh, go to the next type of dis- discussion I want us to have and that is about the relationship between... Well, well, I know that you are a very widely read person and that you love reading and you love literature, but do you find yourself drawn to books that... And I'm not talking about books about the blues or stuff like that. I mean uh, uh, novels that kind of have the same flavor as the songs that you enjoy well i mean there probably is something to that as far as
1: uh what i read i read a good bit of history and i read uh fiction kind of in a parallel way uh in my life i've always got three or four books going at once like I, as i know you do um but i do look for i guess for a certain kind of edge to 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 the to the fiction and the history that I read,
0: uh, well describe the edge for me, What is is it grittiness?
1: Yeah, and grittiness and, and a starkness uh, a, a, I like to think, I guess probably a a certain depth to it that exudes those human feelings we were talking about in a way that, that n- not every writer can do any more than not every singer can do. <laughs> uh, it's what I'm always shooting for and what I'm always trying to soak up wherever I can find it.
0: Well, I'm going to give you an example. I don't know whether you remember this book or not, but I was looking on my shelf the other day and I came across this book called The Last Good Kiss, by a fellow named James Crumley. Yeah. And when I picked that book off the shelf, I realized that some guy named Steve, oh yeah, it was you, Steve Howe had given me that as a Christmas present 10 years ago and had been sitting on my, my shelf for 10 years. And I got that book down and read it and that is one remarkable book. No doubt. But it's all about the grittiness. It is. Uh, it's it's like the blues in long form. It is. Uh, I think Crumley was
1: was one of the most underappreciated and best at all of that. All of his books are like that. And 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 I don't think you have to, like a lot of his characters do, live in a trailer in the desert <laughs> to get the grittiness. You know, I think we all feel it on some level. And uh uh and I've always been attracted to that. I don't know why.
0: Well if we go back uh let's go back to that time period uh that you picked the songs you know the first half of the 20th century And uh, you've got i would just call them the noir detective sort of stuff right. uh Dashiell hammett raymond chandler later jim thompson right uh are those are those the same sort of deals for you i mean do you enjoy reading those people or not so much or what oh no i love reading those guys and i, I love rereading
1: those guys <laughs> I'm uh, a real devotee of all three of those guys you mentioned at different times in my life. Uh, so I just, you know, they had that same kind of finger on the pulse that Crumley had that, that to me is just, doesn't matter whether the setting is, is Los Angeles like, like Chandler or, or El Paso like Crumley, uh, they've all got a, a, a real life aspect to them that uh, that just really comes through to, for me.
0: Well, I know we've always there's always the Faulkner uh, Hemingway uh, discussion that sure. that everybody that's read books from that time period uh, knows about. But we might as well just go ahead and get on that. Did, if you had to pick one way or another, f- or Faulkner or Hemingway, do you you have Beatles a, or Rolling Stones? <laughs> yeah.
1: uh, I'd probably go Hemingway just because maybe because I got onto him earliest and and read more of his stuff
0: earlier uh I always loved Ernest Hemingway still do yeah. well and and I have to admit that I'm I'm with you on that as to, as to those two which is also a little bit interesting to me because Faulkner being set in Mississippi sure as it was uh and uh you might have I can see how one might gravitate towards Hemingway I mean Faulkner instead of Hemingway who's uh, reading about the blues but at the same time Hemingway is full of the blues his story
1: sure is and and uh, I mean in no way do I try to diminish Faulkner by having a preference for Hemingway um, they were probably as great as each other
0: alright so um I didn't give you really – oh, I, I did have something I wanted to mention. You were, you were talking about, I think, dates a while ago. And I think you've got a date coming up. Is it next weekend that is important in your family about some loved one that maybe you've been married to? Yeah, for certain this is my, uh,
1: it'll be 46 years that I've been married to my wife, Lee. Well, that means she's she's put up with that long? Best 46 years of my life. <laughs> yeah, she's a very
0: long-suffering girl. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's a, that's a great Best congr- thing I ever did. Congratulations in advance. Uh, Thank you, brother. Uh, all right. So when I talk to folks like this, I always like to have them kind of look into their crystal ball uh, or, or assess their situation right now, the stage or the phase, however you want to talk about it, that they are in life and uh and see kind of where you are right now and where you think you're going uh if if you had the opportunity to do the things you'd like to do for the next 10 years let's say uh, how do you see how would you like for your life to play out your musically and, and otherwise uh
1: i guess the short answer is just to keep doing what i've always done uh I'd, I'd like to keep my finger in the business because uh, i just enjoy it uh... but i want to work my record label a little bit more uh, i want to keep recording i just love the recording process i love playing with the guys i play with uh, my friend jason weinheimer has a studio in little rock fellowship hall sound uh... and he's making a real name for himself and i just love going up there and working with him uh, I- and I want to just keep studying the music, and I want to work every day to be a better guitar player. That's more important to me to me than anything else. Uh, I enjoy putting these records out. I've, I've put out eight under my name at this point in 13 years, and uh, I want to do some more of those. But then on the other hand, I'd probably be just as happy to have enough time on my hands to sit around with a guitar in my lap
0: what about uh playing gigs uh how How many gigs do you if here again this if you just had your druthers, how many would you like to play in a year or what have you?
1: Eight or ten would be plenty for me at this point. that'd give me plenty of time to study and practice and and uh try to broaden myself and and get even better and better and better you know you never get to the end of that, so I just want to get as good as I can while I still can.
0: Well, I know you and I have spoken before about uh, uh, Malcolm Gladwell's, uh, I guess his rule of thumb that it takes, what, 10,000 hours or something to get a certain level of uh, mastery of a subject. And I feel like you're probably more like 100,000 hours in the guitar at this point.
1: Oh, well, I don't know about that. I mean, I think the the Gladwell deal is is that's 10,000 hours of doing one thing. <laughs> so, wow. I mean, like nothing but playing the guitar. And, and, you know, Lee and I have raised a family, and, and I've worked all those years and everything, so I haven't, I don't know, you know, you start dividing 10,000 hours out, and I might be bumping a few thousand uh, for sure, but but then again, one long tune. You well, never get
0: to the end. Well, I only brought that don't up. Don't expect to, right? In, in the context of... Uh, you've still you've you're still working on your craft, sure, even though you're at a stage where a lot of people would say, "Hey, it's pretty good uh, I'm getting pretty good at this, uh but that's not your approach it's your your approach is you want to get better at it,
1: yeah, and I don't think it ought to be theirs either. I think we're all just working on the building,
0: right <laughs> uh tell me what it means to be working on the building. It means to practice
1: it means if you've got something you want to do, you need to devote yourself to it as much as you possibly can if you think you you can write war and peace uh, then you ought to be able to do it holding down a day job <laughs> you know uh, uh, you shouldn't have to be 20 years old to be to be thought of as a as a singer and a player uh, uh
0: but almost as impossible. I mean, there'd be a rare person that could come along at 20 or 25. And but you mean, look at the music
1: business, man, it's always been a youth market, particularly in our lifetimes. Uh, you know, it, it's a youth market. And uh, like I say, I don't write. I, I cannot imagine that anyone would give a flip about how I feel inside. <laughs> okay. And so I'm not going to bother them with that. Uh, and I honestly. Uh, if i want to express how i feel inside uh i can i can always find somebody who's written a great great song who can express it probably better than i could so uh well that's uh it's about the work not the not what comes from it
0: well and and i can see uh, uh this whole world of great music that's out there that that is the sort of music that you love to play, you're never gonna exhaust that. Oh no. And uh No. Hmm.
1: And you'll never be Segovia. I mean, or or Jimi Hendrix or whoever. Uh so don't worry about it. There's plenty there for all of us to to, to squeeze out and to develop in whatever uh to whatever degree and in whatever manner we want to It's about the pursuit, not the arrest. It's the journey, not the destination, as far as I'm concerned. Not that I ever could get to any of those levels. Uh, But it sure is fun building on something that that you've built on already.
0: That's a really good way of putting it. Um, By the way, uh, now we're sitting here. Here again, our listeners don't know uh, when... We're doing this, but so we're sitting here on October the 7th of 2019, and I know that you have uh, a gig coming up in Grapland, Texas. I do. And uh, tell the listeners just for a minute what what that is.
1: Okay. Uh, uh, the Grapland uh, uh, gig is the Lone Star Blues and Heritage Festival, which will be October 26th, 27th, and 28th. Uh, Friday, Saturday, and half a day Sunday, at uh, the Salmon Lake Park down there, which is a recreation park. But there's going to be live bands from Dallas, Houston, uh, Austin, East Texas, uh, Shreveport that are going to be playing down there, and it's really going to be a good deal. It's going to be a, a, a great festival. I'm going to play with the Mighty Men, and then Dan and I are playing a a duet set. uh, And then I'm going to play a little bit on a couple of uh, sets on the little porch stage, acoustic stage, that they have as well. So it's going to be a fun weekend.
0: Now, how many, uh, when you were talking about eight or ten gigs a year you'd like to do, how many of them are like that, like blues festival type things? Mm
1: -hmm. Very few of them. Uh, There's a whole circuit of that, but it's pretty well locked down. So yeah. yours
0: are more individual gigs that you play around the country?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: All right, well, uh, I think we're going to wrap it up now, but I want to thank Steve Howell for being here with us today.
1: Oh, Steve, thank you for the invitation, man. I sure do appreciate it.
0: And uh, once again, anybody that uh, would like to learn more about Steve, W uh, S is his web page. And that's the portal to all sorts of things about Steve Howell, and we hope you'll visit it. And we thank you for listening to unto Others today. Just kiss your babies gently, have a night, and do the best you can, yeah, and do the best you can.